This is Michael Cohen, and you're listening to Mea Culpa Podcast. Big news today, folks, if you follow the operatic stylings of Rudy Colludi, drunken Giuliani. America's former mayor, turned drunken buffoon, now adds another feather to his cap by having the added stigma of potentially getting disbarred in the District of Columbia. A Washington Post reported on Friday that a D.C. Court of Appeals committee that oversees attorney conduct recommended Friday that Rudy Giuliani, the former New York mayor and personal attorney to former President Donald Trump, be disbarred, determining he should not be allowed to practice law in the nation's capital because of his attempt to block the results in the 2020 presidential election in Pennsylvania. Arm is a bitch, Rudy, especially for anyone who has to sit next to the farting attorney in a court of law. Now, according to the Post, the finding by the ad hoc hearing committee for the D.C. Board of Professional Responsibility follows lengthy hearings in December in which Rudy Colludi vehemently defended his decision to challenge the election results based on information that he said that he had received at that time. And I quote, he claimed massive election fraud but had no evidence of it, the three-person committee determined. By prosecuting that destructive case, Mr. Giuliani, a sworn officer of the court, forfeited his right to practice law. He should be disbarred. And I agree. The Post says that the full board will review the committee's recommendation later in the year during briefings and oral arguments. The board's decision will then be reviewed by the D.C. Court of Appeals, which ultimately makes the final decision on disbarments. In its 38-page report on Friday, the committee said Giuliani used the court system to file complaints that contained vague and speculative allegations that were unsupported. Mr. Giuliani, the committee determined, did not offer any evidence that fraudulent mail-in votes were actually cast or counted. I mean, is this not the Trump way? Let's not forget Donald Trump versus Michael Cohen, Southern District of Florida, Miami. Now we all watched what he did on live television. From the Four Seasons landscaping to his hair dye dripping press conferences, drunken TV rants and courtroom farting, Rudy was a one-man lie machine doing Trump's dirty work. Now, the chickens have come home to roost. Something I told them was going to happen. But did the idiot listen? No. So disbarment is only one of his many worries. As Giuliani is also in the crosshairs of now the special prosecutor. And speaking of Jack Smith, the fearless Trump tormentor-in-chief continues to march forward on two different fronts. While he has already indicted Trump for his mishandling of classified documents and obstruction of justice and will likely bury the mango Mussolini up to his fucking ass and shit in the coming weeks with another 35 to 45 charges, that is the prelude to a full-scale indictment of Trump's attempt to overturn the 2020 election, which will ultimately lead to the January 6th attack on the Capitol. Now, CNN is reporting that Smith's team has a serious interest in a chaotic Oval Office meeting that took place in the final days of the Trump administration, during which the former president considered some of the most desperate proposals to keep himself in power over objections from his White House counsel. 
It's basically where all the real nutjobs lay down the possibility of a full fucking scale coup d'etat. Investigators have questioned witnesses before the grand jury and during interviews about the meeting, which occurred six weeks after Donald Trump lost the 2020 election. Some witnesses were initially asked about the meeting several months ago. Others, like Rudy Colludi, were questioned about the meeting more recently. And Giuliani, in particular, conferred with investigators for two days last month in a voluntary interview about an array of topics, including the December 18, 2020 meeting that he attended. Now, this is known as Queen for a Day in legal parlance. It's a one-time chance for the subject of an investigation to tell their side of the story without that story ever being used against them in a court of law. After that, it's open season if the subject doesn't cooperate with authorities, which Giuliani refuses to do. Prosecutors have specifically inquired about three outside Trump advisors who participated in the meeting. And I'm going to go and I'm going to go through them. It's former Trump lawyer Sidney the Kraken Powell, one-time national security advisor Michael Lunatic Flynn, and former Overstock CEO Patrick Byrne, the sources said. The special counsel's continued interest in this chaotic episode comes on Smith's team as they appear to be nearing charge decisions in the investigation into their efforts to overturn the election results. Investigators are still gathering evidence, reaching out to several new witnesses in recent weeks, and working to schedule interviews. But it's truly looking like all involved are about to get seriously fucked. And no one deserves it more than Trump and his merry band of trees and a sycophants. The legendarily crazy December 2020 Oval Office meeting descended into total fucking chaos as Trump's outside advisors went toe-to-toe with top West Wing lawyers in a heated debate about a plan to have the military seize voting machines in key states that Trump had lost in the election. The meeting attendees also considered naming Powell as special counsel to investigate alleged voter fraud, as well as Trump invoking martial law in an effort to subvert the election results. I mean, you can't make this shit up. Attendees shouted and hurled insults at one another, and Trump capped off the night by tweeting that an upcoming protest of the election results on January 6, 2021 in Washington, D.C., and I quote, will be wild. Well, we all know what happened next, so the rest is history, folks. In other MAGA news, Marjorie Toilet Green, Trump's favorite QAnon queen, has been fucking booted from the ultra-conservative Freedom Caucus. And why would that happen? Well, is it because she's crazy and fucking rabid raccoon on a trash day? No, it's because she wallows in dangerous conspiracy theories and believes forest fires are caused by Jewish space lasers. Well, no, not that either. Well, what about her calls for political violence and other frightening rhetoric? Uh, no. Right? So apparently, green and gun-toting Looney Tunes Colorado Congresswoman Lauren Boebert, they got into some kind of high school-style mean girl spat that ended with green calling Boebert a little bitch. Meanwhile, I'm surprised he didn't call her Hobert. 
And that's apparently where the Republicans draw the line over there. I mean, you can agitate to overturn democracy, even side with Vladimir Putin, but call out the darling of machine gun owners and, well, Houston, we've got a problem. Green was booted from the hard-right group in a vote ahead of the Independence Day holiday, Representative Andy Harris confirmed to Politico on Thursday. An appropriate action, Harris told the outlet, giving her comments about Boebert. And I quote, I think the way she referred to a fellow member was probably not the way we expect our members to refer to one another, especially female members, Harris said, noting that the Georgia firebrand became the first member to ever be expelled from the group because of some of the things she's done. Those things likely go way beyond her fight last month with Boebert, whom she accused of copying her fucking ridiculous articles of impeachment against President Biden. Green, who started as a fierce Trump supporter, rode into Congress on her fucking broomstick as the face of Trump's extremist legislative shock troops. But she has since wormed her way into the very heart of the GOP by forging an unholy alliance with Kevin McCarthy, whom she supported in his speaker bid in exchange for more influence and better committee assignments. McCarthy's troubled coronation helped Green rise to party prominence, and her ascent should have been a real coup for the MAGA right, a symbol of its growing dominance over the party establishment. Instead, her new closeness to McCarthy, the subject of deep far-right loathing, has created a wide gulf between Green and her former caucus. Now, in a statement responding to news, Green took great pains to avoid mentioning the Freedom Caucus. And I quote, In Congress, I served Northwest Georgia first and served no group in Washington. My America First credentials, guided by my Christian faith, are forged in steel, seared into my character, and will never change, she said. I fight every single day in the halls of Congress against the hate America Democrats who are trying to destroy this country. I will work with anyone who wants to secure our border, protect our children inside the womb and after they are born end the forever foreign wars, and do the work to save this country. The GOP has less than two years to show America what a strong, unified, Republican-led Congress will do when President Trump wins the White House in 2024. This is my focus, nothing else, Green concluded. Now don't cry for me, Marjorie Toilet Green. I mean, <laughs> let's, let's just do it. Don't cry for me, Marjorie Toilet Green. Right? I mean, because don't worry, we won't. Politics makes strange bedfellows, and if Marjorie Toilet suddenly is enemies, that makes me smile. Well, okay, they make me smile. But the more these folks tear into each other as part of the greater opportunity that we have, we as Democrats have, to dismantle the whole goddamn MAGA machine, well, I have two thumbs up for that. And now for the main event. Today we welcome back to the show Michael Smirkanish, the host of the TV program on CNN, fittingly called, well, Smirkanish. He's also the host of the Michael Smirkanish program on Sirius XM. 
He's been nationally syndicated in more than 100 markets, and he has authored seven books, two New York Times bestsellers, and his novel talk was optioned for television by Warner Brothers. When the pandemic hit in 2020, Smirkanish was about to embark on a new tour called Things I Wish I Knew Before I Started Talking, a one-man show commemorating his 30th anniversary in talk radio. A taped version of that presentation was aired worldwide as a one-hour CNN special in 2020. Nowadays, he is focused on pointing out the foibles of the MAGA mob while trying to find a middle ground in our extremely divisive nation, hoping somehow that this nation can find a way to come back together before the 250th anniversary of our nation. And, I mean, this is truly a fascinating conversation. So let's go now to my conversation with Michael Smirkanish. Okay, so Michael. Before we get into all things indictment, we're going to talk a lot about that today. Yesterday, you posted a provocative question on your Twitter feed that read, and I quote, In three years, will America be able to unite in celebration of America's 250th birthday? For those who were not alive for America's bicentennial in 1976, and I remember it like it was yesterday, it was a moment where the nation actually united after the chaos of the late 60s and the ugliness and the corruption of Watergate. So what in your mind is similar? And then again, what is different? And what are the chances, again, in your mind that we can come together as a nation? I remember in 76 because I've born and raised and spent my entire life in Philadelphia and the surrounding suburbs. And on a day in 1976, July 4, 76, with my parents, I got on the train and came into Center City, as we call the downtown area, in the hopes of catching a glimpse of President Gerald Ford, uh, which did not happen. The, the, the crowds were huge and we got nowhere near Independence Hall. So like you, I remember it as a great time of coming together, but I'm worried. Uh, and I'm also concerned because by the time we get to the 250th anniversary, the 2024 presidential election will be behind us. And judging from where we stand now, I don't see how the the divide that exists in the country puts us in a better place between now and Election Day. Depending on who the combatants are in that election, I fear we could be in a worse position by the time we're celebrating the nation's 250th birthday. You'll be interested to know, uh, Michael, and by the way, every day in my Smirconish.com daily newsletter, a different poll question. That one, 20,000 plus people voted. It came out pretty evenly divided of people who said, yes, we can unite and people who said, no, it'll never happen. Well, that's really a shame. I mean, right? I mean, if you think about 250, it's supposed to be a wonderful celebration like it was in um, 1976. I was 10 years old at the time. I remember everything about that day. I really do. I was at yeshiva. I went to a, uh, a yeshiva, uh, which was in Long Island in the five towns called Hillel. And we had a um, bicentennial celebration. And um, the winner and I actually happened to have won. I mean, my mom actually helped. It was You had to submit a drawing that was important to you that related to the bicentennial. And so <laughs> I was not a great drawer. But then again, thank God Noah's 
<laughs> Nobody else in my class was either. And with my mom's help, it came out really, really good. And I won a bicentennial 50-cent piece. And I have it to this day. You know, um, it, was, it was really, I mean, it, it meant a lot. And we, I remember we spoke about, um, you know, the day, uh, the Independence Day. And I remember there was like a little uh, reenactment in the class. I mean, it was extremely important. We all felt so American. But then again, that was 1976. And I agree with you. I'm, so, I'm sort of concerned. I don't see the patriotism um, for the country as much as I'm seeing patriotism for the party or worse, patriotism for the person. You know, there was a, a poll released within the last couple of days from Gallup and you could read it as glass half empty, glass half full. Many of the headlines said that those who are extremely proud of America are at a record low. And I guess that's true. It's still at 39%. And when you factor in those who are very proud, so extremely proud and very proud, you still get to 67%. Nearly seven in 10 of us are at least very or extremely proud of the country. Seven out of 10 is not bad. Because to look at the political divide in this country, you might come to the conclusion that would be a lot worse. And and by the way, I don't conflate uh, patriotism and uh, love of country, meaning I think that you can you can be disappointed in your country and still be a great patriot. I don't think that you need to be mm -hmm. satisfied with everything in order to be a patriot. I love this country. I think there are many things that need to be fixed. I stand with you on that one, 100%. And, you know, that's actually a really smart way of putting it. I, too, I, I love this country. I'm afraid, though, and I, I, I want to be very clear about this. I'm afraid of where this country is heading, and I'm afraid of who's on the other side uh, in terms of uh, whether or not I even end up staying here for the rest of my life. I mean, it's saddens me, my father, who was originally, as I probably have told you in the past, was born in Poland, went through the Holocaust, um, ended up in Toronto, where he grew up, then came to America. And my father loves this country with all his heart. And he'll tell, he'll tell you that it's the greatest country in the world. And the man's been, you know, to several different countries during his lifetime. And the thought of even leaving it when you're so blessed to have been born in this country and not to have to try to fight your way and put your life on the line in order to make it to this country, it saddens me a lot. And I'm, I'm very interested. And I love your polls, by the way. You know, I, I frequent your newsletter and I join in that poll. Um, I'm concerned, uh, again, about the 250th birthday. And, there's, and what I'm also afraid of is will there be... So much animosity going at the time that it could even turn violent? I hope not. I mean, I'm not worried about a civil war-like succession, uh, secession in this country. But I just think that the drift of the red and the blue states has become so significant. And I'll tell you something else, because I'm, I'm sure one of us is going to mention the name of your former boss within 60 or 90 seconds. So let's just get to it. I think that many people mistakenly believe that Trump is the driver of all that divides us. 
The division was already building in this country. I think Brexit, which preceded Trump's election in 2016, was a sign of a lot of tumult in the world generally. And I would argue to your audience that if Donald Trump is not a factor in the 2024 presidential, it certainly looks like he will be, but take Trump out of the equation. And I don't wish bad things for his health, but I mean, there's going to come a point where Donald Trump will not be the fodder for every page one story. We'll still have these problems because the thinking that gave rise, you know, the feeling of being left behind mm-hmm. by so many in this country, that's still going to be with us. Yep. Well, the kids like to call it FOMO, right? The fear of missing out for whatever <laughs> for whatever the reason may be. There's They've leached on to... Um, Donald into that Trumpism attitude, which, again, we're seeing so many of the other Republicans trying to imitate it, whether it's DeSantis or whether it's now, you know, um, everyone other than Mike Pence, let's just say. Right. Um, I want to move on for a second and then ask you, you had a conversation with first brother Frank Biden about President Biden's openness to using psychedelics to treat addiction. And that's gotten an enormous amount of attention. Now, President Biden knows the pain that families go through in dealing with hardcore addiction. I mean, he knows that firsthand from watching his own son hit rock bottom and in a very public manner. In addition, America continues to lead the world in opioid debts with over 100,000 a year. I lost two of my best friends, my one best friend since the age of five. And I shouldn't say that he's lost. He's just completely brain dead. Better he should be gone. And then my other best friend since the age of 11, he died of an opioid overdose, uh, you know, about three years ago. It's very hard, you know. Now, these overdoses have surpassed accidents as the leading cause of death for, you know, for our population. And knowing all of this, the idea that something might work in treating addiction, as far as I'm concerned, is welcome news. Because nothing else to date has had much, you know, um, efficacy. So if you would, discuss this with me and my audience in the context of what Frank Biden discussed with you. There was a story. There was a story in the Wall Street Journal. I happen to have it in front of me, even though I, I didn't know you were going to bring this up. But it was published on June 27 under the headline Magic Mushrooms, LSD, Ketamine, the Drugs That Power Silicon Valley. And I always pay attention to stories that are getting the most traction in a variety of different outlets. I want to know what people are buzzing about. And I saw that for two days running, In a really busy news cycle at the Wall Street Journal, this was the most popular item. And Kirsten Grind, who was one of the co-authors, was then a guest of mine on my Sirius XM radio program. The lead of the story, you'll love this, Michael, says Elon Musk takes ketamine. Sergey Brin sometimes enjoys magic mushrooms. Executives at venture capital's firm Founders Fund, known for its investments in SpaceX and Facebook, have thrown parties that include psychedelics. So I brought her on to talk about this story about how some for therapeutic purposes, some for what they think is uh, clarity of thought purposes. But Silicon Valley seems very much on the vanguard 
of this move towards psychedelics. And I had a really good conversation with the uh, the author, co-author, and then the telephone lines all kind of melted down with people wanting to share their own experience or reaction. And one of the calls was Frank from Florida. I know Frank Biden. I don't know that I've ever been in his company, but I've spoken to him many times. He's very open about his own uh, alcoholism, alcohol addiction. And Frank called the show. Thank God was able to get through because all the lines were were lit and just extemporaneous reacting like any other caller wanted to tell me how much he appreciated that discussion on that day's show. So, of course, I said, have you had this conversation with your brother? And he said, I have. And I said, well, what can you tell us? And he said, I can tell you that my brother is open minded to the whole issue of of the uh, medicinal or therapeutic, not recreational, but the therapeutic value that there might be in some of these treatments. Now, when Frank hung up and we spoke for like seven minutes, I didn't treat him like any other caller when I recognized who it was, because then the call would have ended probably after a minute. But I let him go on and remind the audience of the Biden family battles with these demons of addiction. And Michael, I was convinced, I even pulled the president's schedule for that day because I was convinced somebody was going to put a microphone in front of him and say, hey, your brother just said this, tell us more. But the news cycle got consumed with those Supreme Court decisions on affirmative action and the website designer for a same-sex wedding couple and any questions that were put to the president were on, you know, other matters. But I'm sure it's going to happen. Somebody's going to ask him because I don't think he's on the record. And I'd love to hear what he would say about this. Yeah, as as would I. Boy, how I wish that this sort of movement had existed. You know, I don't think that there's an American out there who doesn't have a family member or a friend or a friend's family member that is struggling with some sort of a drug addiction, whether it's opioid, whether it's, um, you know, heroin, cocaine, alcohol, whatever it might be. I really don't believe that there's an American out there that would not gladly welcome this microdosing, I think is what they call it, of these, um, uh, of these drugs that have really been stigmatized. But I do know that the John Hopkins Center, because after I saw that on your program, and obviously with the history of friends of mine who have passed, I started reading onto it and I saw that John Hopkins, um, they have a center for what's called the psychedelic and consciousness research and that they're kind of like really leading the way in exploring all of these new and innovative treatments um, using a drug called um, psilocybin. And, yep. you know, yeah. it's supposed to help for PTSD. It's supposed to help for addictions and so on. And the funny thing is the entire program right now is backed by $17 million of funding. Think of it. Could you imagine if this... $17 million of funding provides a cure or a legitimate, true benefit to dealing with people's addiction. I mean, $17 million versus the 
billions of dollars that's spent on right trying to preventive care and then all of these um these facilities that people go to and then the hospitalizations and worse the deaths i mean that would really be something i totally agree with you and the reason that frank feels comfortable in calling me and having this conversation frank biden the president's brother is that he and I have had this dialogue before. In fact, I also had the conversation with Val Biden, the president's sister. Um, I've pretty much spoken to all the Bidens about this except Joe. And he he knows my view of what drives the whole Hunter story because on air, I've said at its core, and I'm not excusing the bad decisions that Hunter has made, not at all, but I've offered to my audience as an explanation, much like you've said, that we're all one degree of separation from these issues. And when I look at the dynamics of the Biden family and Joe's sort of lax attitude with Hunter, allowing him to fly on Air Force Two or to trade on the family name, which surely he knew, I look at it as a father trying to throw a lifeline to a son, that that his son in, in the throes of addiction, that he was scared to death that he was going to lose him like he'd lost Bo. And that maybe Joe left his guard down a little bit, just hoping that Hunter would get more on the straight and narrow by being a business person than someone in the throes of, of, of a crack cocaine addiction. And I know that Frank heard me say that and probably appreciate it. And it, I know that others get pissed off and they think that I'm just carrying water for the family when I say that. But that, that's how I look at it. Yeah, but it's so wrong. None of us should be judging anyone else's unfortunate addiction. I certainly don't. Um, and again, maybe it's because of my close relationship to two friends of mine. Again, one from the age of five. Five. And then to see him lying in a bed in a completely vegetative state with no brain activity, his body just won't die. And then the other one who was so smart and he was so successful, came from such a well-established family, there's an addiction. I sympathize with them. I don't criticize them. And if this type of a treatment could help in any way, shape or form like you, I'm, I'm all for it. Yeah. And I'll say this. I think that there's an issue here to be harnessed by a presidential candidate, if someone would address this and other mental health issues. Um, Chris Christie spoke in 20, I guess it was 2016. He kind of had a moment in New Hampshire when he started speaking about addiction. And I, I think in his family history, it was it was cigarettes. It was not drugs. And people started to respond to town halls. I, I saw him within the last uh, year and and said to him, you know, there's something else that needs to be addressed in terms of mental health, social media, the psychedelic topic that you and I are addressing. But nobody nobody has owned it yet. And I wish they would. Within 24 hours of Frank Biden saying to me what he said, RFK Jr. had a town hall on News Nation. I don't know if you saw it. And nah, I don't watch News Nation. <laughs> OK, well, he he volunteered that he thinks that psychedelics ought to be legalized and I think it was Liz Vargas who was doing the interview was kind of taken aback by it. And then he spoke on exactly this issue. Yeah. And I don't know why she would have. I don't know why it's OK to send 
an individual off to a rehab or, you know, to give them uh, methadone or some other drug that they know that helps to curb the desire, right? But they wouldn't be okay with having, you know, medically provided microdosing that after John Hopkins University, right, one of the leading medical research facilities in the world, that they're telling you that there could be some very serious benefits to the usage of the psilocybin um, for antidepressants, for PTSD, but for all sorts of drug addiction. I don't know why that they would be so shocked. And I'm with you and good for, you know, good for Chris Christie talking about it. And you know what? Nicotine is a drug. All right. People have to understand that, too. But yet, how many people are we still losing a year from smoking? I agree, Michael. So let me ask you this then. The Supreme Court ended another. I mean, I personally think the Supreme Court is out of control. But they ended another momentous session by now overturning affirmative action in the college admission process and upholding a ruling allowing business owners the right to refuse service to individuals whose lifestyles or beliefs go against their own. Now, this on the heels of a host of other decisions, including the overturning of Roe versus Wade last year. I'm curious, I'm curious what you believe the long-term consequences of this court will be. And if you think that they're out of step with the American people in their ultra-conservative rulings. So... You know, this is the Donald Trump Supreme Court. I mean, a third of the nine, three of the nine he put there and they are young. They're in their 50s. So this is going to go on for a while and elections have consequences. And every four years, uh, I find myself in front of a radio microphone telling people, yes, the economy is important and yes, national security is important, but don't underestimate the impact of a president to appoint not only the Supreme Court justices when there's a vacancy, but the entire federal bench. And the real long-term reach of his presidency, I think, is 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 in the court. I'll tell you something uh, that you might find interest, interesting. Lori Smith is the Colorado website designer. She was the, uh, the, the, the party to that case, which was announced on, on Friday, the holding of it being that the public accommodation law in Colorado, which recognized the LGBTQ community as being a protected class, uh, that she had a speech right that was threatened by the public accommodation law, and she could not be forced to build a website, just like the Baker in 2018 couldn't be forced mm-hmm. to build the, the cake for a same-sex couple because it would infringe on her speech. She was my guest on CNN on Saturday, and so too was uh, was her lawyer. And we had a really good conversation about this. And the lawyer, who is uh, Kristen Wagoner, who's been successful uh, on a number of Supreme Court arguments, a conservative lawyer, she was trying to convince me that this is a this is very black and white to know what speech is in this context. And I was trying to say, I think it's all in the gray area and it's going to be the subject of a lot of future litigation. I mean, the baker is speaking through his pastry. Uh, the website designer is speaking through what she creates for uh, a, a, a couple that is man and wife. Um, what about the wedding singer? 
Like, what about the guy who does the decorations in the, if we're going to use the wedding context? I, I just think like some of these, it's pretty hard to to determine what is speech and what is not speech. And my own view for what it's worth is if you're a web designer or if you're a baker or if you're a pharmacist, like you've kind of signed up for the job. And if somebody wants birth control pills provided and you're the pharmacist, that's your job. And if somebody comes to you to bake a cake and you hold yourself out as baking wedding cakes, then like, you know, bake the cake for crying out loud. And the same with with all of these circumstances. I think it gets very, very dangerous when we say that you've got a speech right not to provide the public accommodation that the law requires. Right. Okay, but that's Judge Smirkanish. We now have a decision, right, where the majority of the Supreme Court has now made a determination that Judge Smirkanish is in the dissent. This is a real problem. And I don't think that we have yet, and I'll be honest with you, I don't think the Supreme Court, when they were making this determination, the individual justices, I don't think they thought about the, the effect that this type of a decision can actually have. Now, all of a sudden, you want to have a cake made for a heterosexual Jewish couple. And the person turns around and says, Jews offend me because they killed Christ. All right? Despite the fact that John Paul II turned around and said it wasn't the Jews, it was the Romans, but we're not even going to get into that discussion. (laughs) Now, all of a sudden, they say, Jews offend me. And I don't want to produce a cake for them. Jews offend me. I'm not going to do this website. Let somebody else, let another Jewish website designer do it. Let somebody else do it. It just isn't going to be me. Now they turn around and they say, you know what? I have a problem with women. I I, I don't want to, I don't want to bake, I don't want to bake a cake for her birthday. Why? I don't know. Um, You know, she had an abortion or she has blonde hair. Right. She dyes her hair blonde. It's whatever you're now going to claim offends you and your religious conviction will end up falling under this decision. And yeah, it's you know, when you have a smaller class like the LGBTQ and they've been involved now in so much discussion. Well, there are too many people that are saying, you know what, let them deal with it. It's okay. It's only a small protected class, or in this case, an unprotected class. And I say bullshit to that. I say, if you don't stand up for the smaller classes, you're going to end up with another, I hate to say it, Holocaust situation. You're going to end up where the small class becomes a soon-to-be or a wanted-to-be discarded class. And that's not that's not right. So... I said some of these things to my guests on CNN, again, the the, the litigant in this uh, and her lawyer, and they assured me that I was wrong, that she would take business as a website designer from a business person who is gay. And if she knew they were gay, she would take that client. They tried to distinguish that. But in this case, you're asking me to build a website for a marriage that my religion is at odds with. When I hear you speak, I think that the public is going to be confused, right? I think that the message that went out from this determination is that if you don't want to provide service for somebody, 
The Supreme Court now says it's okay for you not to provide some level of service, even if that's mistaken. I'm concerned that there's going to be bad behavior, particularly toward minorities, uh, could be religious minorities, could be racial or ethnic minorities. And and there 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 will be bad things that will flow from this decision. Yeah, and I don't think it's going to I think it's everything. Race, religion, creed, color, ethnic background, uh, origin. It could be anything and everything that they have the ability merely to state that this offends my religious convictions and that I shouldn't have to do it. I mean, what if hypothetically, do you think that this would be the same thing if they just said, well, you know, I don't believe in um, I don't believe in racial equality. Therefore, I don't want to create a website that is fundamentally in opposition to my religious conviction. Right. Well, so do my, I mean, each side, so, I, I read the, I read the opinion on, on Friday night and each side had hypotheticals. So Sotomayor writing for the dissent, hers was, okay, what if there's a, a, a photographer and the photographer holds himself out as taking corporate photos. And now a, a female comes to him for the photograph and, uh, and wants her picture taken. And he believes a woman's place is in the home. I can't condone you being a corporate leader mm -hmm. as a female. I mean, you know, these type of examples are, are kind of endless for us to be thinking up. Well, I think we have to because that's the whole problem with these types of decisions. I mean, and I mean, let's just now just into the overturning of now the affirmative affirmative action. I mean, this is the same. This is the exact same thing. But the way that they rationalize it, well, you just can't ask what the race is, but that person can put it in their essay and use right. that platform in order to continue to make it known how race has affected their life. Maybe I want to talk about horse racing, you know? I mean, you know, maybe I want to talk about how I'm the long shot, uh, you know, in a, in a horse race. And while there are certainly candidates, there are candidates that are better suited based upon numbers than I for admission at Harvard, right? I mean, maybe they got a perfect score on their SAT or ACT. Maybe, you know, they've taken 15 APs and I've only taken five, right? Maybe I didn't do as well on the ACT, SATs as they, but, but I wake up at four o'clock every morning. I go to the gym. I read continuously. I'm politically active. I'm, you know, I'm business minded. I'm entrepreneurial. And so maybe you don't want to necessarily bet on the, the favorite horse, right? Because favorite horse basically pays even one to one. Maybe you want to go with the long shot that pays, you know, 300 to one. Right. I, I totally. And, and he opened that door, as you point out, Chief Justice Roberts invited people to do exactly that. And the other thing that's perplexing is that the military was given a pass. They made very clear in this decision that they were they were because they said that no one had filed an amicus brief on behalf of any of the um, military academies, that they were not establishing a rule that would apply to the military leadership. That's going to be subject to litigation going forward as well.
You know, what's funny is Justice Roberts seems to leave a lot of things open. You know, I have a, my lawsuit, which you and I have spoken about, uh, Michael Cohen versus the United States of America, Department of Justice, Donald Trump, Bill Barr, et al. And in that, the judge, Judge Lyman, here in federal court, New York, made a determination that as much as he understands and he agrees with the position of an unconstitutional remand being a violation of my, of my rights and I should be permitted to bring the action against the United States government for what they did, at least to obtain discovery, it was shot down based upon the overturning of Bivens, which is the precedented case. Now, Justice Roberts, in that decision, turns around and he says, unless it is of the most unusual circumstance. And so right now we're on appeal based upon Justice Roberts' own words, unless it is of the most unusual circumstance. And I ask you, Justice Smirkanish, what could be more unusual than the President of the United States weaponizing the Department of Justice through a willing and complicit Attorney General to jail a critic because that person refused to waive their First Amendment constitutional right. And now I don't have, unless it's overturned and it gets sent back to Judge Lyman's court, I will have no recourse. I will have no recourse against a government that violates my First Amendment constitutional right. Now what? Michael, I think that people's perception of the judiciary and the court's handling of the Trump presidency and the Trump post-presidency is having a significant impact on uh, the election still to come. And this is a slight dodge from addressing your case in particular, because I, I'm not as expert in it as, as you might think. But when I look at the last couple of days and this holiday weekend, to me, the most significant story is the fact that, and I don't care whose number you accept, you could take the 50,000 number, you could take 20,000, 70,000. There's a town in South Carolina called Pickens, which has a population, I think, of 3,300. And Donald Trump came to town on Saturday, and by all accounts, tens of thousands of people were there. This in a state where there are two legitimate, Nikki Haley, Tim Scott, like not fringe types, like two legitimate candidates from that state are running against him. And that was the kind of a crowd that he drew. And I don't know how to interpret that other than these indictments politically, both Bragg and Smith, Smith slash Garland, um, thus far are helping him rally that base. And here we are now in July and Fonnie Willis, the Fulton County DA, has served notice that by the end of the summer, she's going to be making some type of an announcement. I, I don't think that she needed to put the local sheriff in writing the letter that she wrote. I'm sure you know what I'm referring to mm -hmm. on notice. Like, hey, be ready for this. Like, if you're not indicting Donald Trump, there's nothing you need to be ready for in Fulton County, Georgia. I think she tipped her hand, and I'm not the only one uh, with that impression. And and who knows if there's more to come relative to January 6th from Smith and from Garland because their grand jury work, you know, seems to continue at a fever pitch. So... Are we looking at the prospect here that Trump gets indicted again and maybe again, but certainly for a third time 
How many people will show up in Pickens, South Carolina, if he's indicted for a third time? Maybe 100,000. So, like, what do you make of that? I, I'm kind of curious. What what does Michael Cohen, given your history with him, make of that? And are you accepting of the fact that politically he's benefiting so far? Well, I don't think he's politically benefiting. I do believe that you are seeing the rally call of part of that 30 percent of the base that are diehard in the cult. I don't give two shits what the guy does. Let him fucking shoot someone on Fifth Avenue. Makes no difference to me. I'm still voting for the guy when you ask them why. But the country was better. The country was better when Donald Trump was the president. And you ask them specifically how. And they go, I'm in, I'm in, I'm in, I'm in, I'm in. they can't give you the answer, but they'll just tell you emphatically and with, with fervor that the country was better off under Donald Trump than it is currently today. Um, these are, as far as I see, they are part of the white privilege group. You don't really see any, um, you don't see any black, brown, you see almost no Latino, certainly at that rally. I'll tell you what made me a little nervous more than even that Pickens rally was what took place in South Carolina when you saw Lindsey Graham get up and start getting booed. Same right? event. And he, it's the same event. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. That's, that, the that's the same. That's the right. Um, that that bothered me more than what the people there were saying afterwards when they were being interviewed. The fact that they were able to boo right, uh, Lindsey Graham and then Trump got up onto the stage and then actually went ahead and taunted the audience to continue to boo Lindsey Graham. But don't worry, you know, so listen, people make mistakes. It's a very, very sophisticated, latent message that he's passing to them, if you follow what I mean. And then you see Lindsey Graham going on television and making all of these announcements, requesting that they donate more money to Donald if you can, do whatever you can. It's all about Donald. I, I mean, this is really authoritarianism at its, at its, you know, at its very beginnings. We're six weeks away from the first Republican debate. I don't know what that's going to look like because I don't know if Donald Trump is going to participate. I'm not sure who will make I say the, no. the 40,000 uh, donor. That's one of the, the requirements in order to get on that stage. Um, Ron DeSantis has not had a breakout moment. Ron DeSantis is in the exact same position that he was before he announced. I'm amazed at the consistency of the Republican polls. Trump yep. somewhere at about 50 percent, DeSantis somewhere at about 25 percent and everybody else in low single digits. And I used to think, Michael, that, well, if someone would get Trump alone, the dynamic would change. That was always my thought process in 2016, that if if Ted Cruz could get him alone, if Kasich could get him alone, nobody ever got him alone. And by the end, you know, he 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 had enough to secure the nomination. But in the most recent NBC poll, even when it was a head-to-head -head between DeSantis and Trump, Trump still hammers him. So 
I don't know that anything's going to change is what I'm trying to say. I don't know that anything. I used to be of the opinion that the weight of these indictments would cause Republicans to say we're going to blow this in the general because he's got too much baggage. I'm not saying that anymore because Ron DeSantis has been announced for a couple of weeks and he's not gained at all from what I can see. And Trump's support seems to have have really come home. Um, so maybe this is the way that it's going to be. And maybe it's, it's you know, Donald Trump steamrolls all of those, no matter how many are still on that stage. And he now is poised to run against Biden if it is Biden. Yeah, which is why he's not going to go to uh, any debate. He knows he's a terrible debater. He knows he's going to be, you know, receiving incoming from the second, you know, the debate starts to the very, very end. And Donald, despite what he'll tell you, does not have thick skin at all. He has incredibly thin skin. But the thing that I've been calling for, and I'm not the only one, but I've been yelling at the Biden administration. You see the damage that's being caused by the Supreme Court. Why not just fucking expand it? He has the right. He has the right to do it. Article 3, Section 1 of the Constitution gives Congress the authority to change the size of the Supreme Court. Why does he not then try to increase the size? And I'll tell you, if in fact he can't get Congress, you know, in order to play along, what he should do is you got to take a little bit out of the Trump playbook. Do it by executive order and then put them on, change whatever you need to do, and then let's fight it out in the court for the next 20 years. I'm for none of this. I'm for no, I'm for none of that. I'm a traditionalist. Go win the presidential election and, you know, hope that someone like Ruth Bader Ginsburg doesn't stay too long because she did. And Obama why do we have tried to hope. To, Obama. Why, Mike, why do we have to hope? No more hope. Hope isn't working for us. Yeah, I'm not I'm not for that. I, I'm 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 respectful of all three branches, you know, being separate uh, uh, branches of government. I don't like the executive now trying to to outnumber the number of justices with whom he disagrees. I, I don't think Biden will do it. And I don't think that he I don't think that he should do it. And what were you saying about Obama before I so rudely interrupted? I was saying that that Uh, President Obama apparently summoned, this has been written about pretty extensively. In fact, I had the conversation uh, with Nina Totenberg, even though I don't think she's the one who originally broke it, but she wrote up, she wrote a book about her relationship with, with Justice Ginsburg. That's what brings it to my mind. But Obama tried to give her the word to, you know, retire and she would have none of it. And had she retired on his watch, it would have been a pick that he would have had, which would have which would have at least shifted one of the votes on the Supreme Court. You got to know when to hold them and know when to fold them, as Kenny Rogers said. Yes, but that's not on the, you know, the back of the president. That's on the back of the Supreme Court judge who only, based upon their determination to retire or passing away, leaves the seat vacant for the president to make the nomination. And that's not right. She stayed on too long. Can I say and you it's now you cost, said earlier it's, you said earlier in the conversation that you wondered if if this court is at odds with with public opinion and I I should have said something which is it's not their job I mean it's, it's the job arguably of the Congress to be in sync with the American people but the polling that I've seen on the affirmative action case when you ask people should should race conscious decisions be banned 
the polling that I've seen so far is that the Supreme Court is on the same side as the majority of Americans. A majority of Americans don't want race conscious decisions being made by these schools. It's a way. Look, again, we can go on and discuss that. For I don't believe that the Supreme Court is in sync with the majority of Americans. And I believe as a direct result, we will see that in the polls in the general election. We won't see that in the polls as it relates to the Republican, to the GOP side. I agree with you. I think Trump ends up running away with it. His 28 to 30 percent base is going to be more than enough to get him the nomination. And the more people that are on the stage, just do the math. Right. The math doesn't right. allow anybody else to achieve right. greater than what he already has as his base. So, look, let's move off of some of this. I want to talk to you about the recording, the CNN released infamous tape of former President Trump discussing General Milley's attack plans for Iran. Now, I'm curious how you view the tape and its significance as well as what you made of Trump's later backpedaling, which he's just so good at, right, to, um, you know, you're saying that it was just bravado. Well, I think from a legal standpoint, he is he's in a heap of trouble because that completely contradicted what he said to Brett Baer. The audio recording that surfaced was at odds and, and Brett Baer, you know, confronted him on it. And it can, and it also contradicted what Trump had said uh, at other times when he was asked. So, you know, all, all that is coming in, right? All those things that he said can and will be used against him. His is a race against the clock, yep. because he has got to hope that he wins that election and can self-pardon, and that that would stand up, or or that he loses and someone else, maybe even Joe Biden, has a Jerry Ford-like moment and decides that for the sake of the country, you know, our national nightmare is over and they pardon him with the hope that he goes quietly into that night. On a legal on a legal basis, I think that he's he's in great trouble in the Jack Smith case. You and I are going to disagree on this. I don't think that the Alvin Bragg case uh, is all that significant. I think and you'll disagree with this, but I'll say it anyway. I at do. its core, at its core, it's a case about sex. And I don't think the American people, maybe a Manhattan jury feels differently, but I don't think the American people wants to see a prosecution based on sex. Um, but the Smith case, the Mar-a-Lago docs, that's a real case. And I think that it imperils Donald Trump no matter where it gets tried. So with Alvin Bragg, look, Joe Biden can pardon Donald Trump. You're right. If he gets a Gerald Ford moment, but it doesn't affect the Alvin Bragg case, it's not going to affect the Fonnie yep. Willis case because those are state cases and, you know, federal pardons have no effect. Um, I always say to people when they start talking about Alvin Bragg's case and it's not as significant as the refusal to return top secret documents, the flashing of, you know, attack plans, top secret documents to people who aren't classified, an insurrection, seditious conspiracy, you know, uh, that of the four cases that are currently trying to overturn a free and fair election, of the four cases, I will acknowledge, as I have in the past, but I will do it again for you, Justice um, Smirkanish, that the 
Alvin Bragg case is on that level, the least of the four significant. But nevertheless, it's a crime. There, there are crimes, there are codes that have been violated by Donald J. Trump that Alvin Bragg will put forth in whichever court that they end up in, that Alvin Bragg will put forth and his prosecutorial team in order to obtain a conviction. Now, many people would say the same thing about, you know, Al Capone. That's not as sexy as murder, extortion, racketeering, mobster, right? Um, they got him on tax evasion. But people will be satisfied, at least a, a large percentage of the country, I believe, will be satisfied with a conviction, even though it's just the beginning of, as you appropriately put it, Donald's legal troubles. Michael, if that case goes to trial when it's called, which is March of 2024, it'll be right in the thick of primary season. Super Tuesday will already have occurred, but significant a significant number of states will still be voting. When I go back to what just happened in South Carolina with 50,000 people showing up, I think the image, there are no court cameras in New York, as you know, but still Trump having to be at that courthouse every day and he'll have to be for a two or three week trial. I think it'll benefit him. And I think that the Bragg case poisoned the well for Jack Smith. Let me say it more straightforward. If the Smith case had come first, the Mar-a-Lago document case, the obstruction case, uh, I think it would have had a, a different impact on the public because it was the Bragg case. I think it created this idea in the minds of of some Republicans, not all Americans, but some Republicans that they're going to go after him and do whatever legal gymnastics they have to in the Bragg case to try and elevate it to a felony. Uh, and I think it created a perception that this is all political, that, you know, it's the Democratic uh, Manhattan DA and it's the Fulton County Democratic DA and Merrick Garland appointed by Joe Biden. I I'm, I'm not buying into all that. Some of it, by the way, I probably I, do. I went to prison I for it. I went to prison I know. Well, for I mean, I it. Know, so it seems to have been a felony I'm, for me, I but it. not a felony for I, Donald. I totally get it. Like, how can we have this conversation when Michael Cohen went away? And Donald Trump didn't. So I, I understand your your argument about it. But in the court of public opinion, he paid off a he paid off a porn star. And, and what? We're going to interrupt the presidential race for a two to three week trial. I don't think many people are going to are going to be a, a, a approving well, of that. Certainly not the people that were at that South Carolina event. That's for right. sure. But as yes. we also saw from polls, I think it's close to 70 percent of all Americans, Republicans and Democrats, don't even want to see Donald run. So who knows? You know, again, um, Americans are fickle. It reminds me right. of like in the movie, um, you know, um, Gladiator, right? The, <laughs> the crowd is fickle, my brother, right? They, they're, they're fickle. And I believe that when Alvin Bragg lays out the case, then I, I do believe that people will say, yeah, it was a crime. And if Michael Cohen could get charged for it, convicted and in, in sentenced, um, so should Donald Trump. He's not above the law. We're right. all in I, this I together. I, I simply wanted to say this. I, I speak with a lot of people who are of the mindset, radio callers or just just people that encounter me like he could never he Trump. He could never win again. But when no. you when you when wait, I'm not accepting that. I'm not accepting that. I think he can win again because 
a general election between Joe Biden and Donald Trump is a coin toss. I'm, I'm not even looking at those national polls. There was just a, a Quinnipiac survey of Pennsylvania, very purple, my home state, Pennsylvania. You know, Trump wins it in 2016, upsetting Hillary. Biden comes back and wins it in 2020. It was a neck and neck poll. In fact, Trump may have even been ahead by one point, which doesn't matter because it's it's within the, uh, the margin of, of error. But I believe Donald Trump could beat Joe Biden. I'm not saying he would. I think he could. And and therefore, the question becomes, well, could he win the nomination? And you and I already went through all the reasons why, yes, he appears like he's headed in that direction. Look, so there's more problems, again, you know, lurking in the shadows here, right? Um, in Especially as it relates to the DOJ's case against Donald. Um, and that's based on the former chief of staff, Mark Meadows, who we now know signed a cooperation letter. So I'm curious how you see Meadows' role emerging in the current indictment and potentially others to come. This should also then have what will, <laughs> what I don't know why it doesn't, but a negative effect upon a general election, but they must be saving Meadows's testimony for the final nail in the coffin around, you know, Trump's attempts to overturn the 2020 election, as well as his activities in Georgia. What's your what's your point? What's your position on that? I am I am unblurring my background because I want to show you that I have Mark Meadows' book in front of me. Okay. By, by, by the way, I paid $8.33 at Amazon for it last week, and I'm willing to sell it to Michael Cohen for $7.25. How's that? I'll give you I five, bought, not a penny I, more. I bought the book. I bought the book because something's something wasn't adding up about this. There were a number of stories that were written about that Trump audio, and I'm talking New York Times and Washington Post, where they weren't revealing to whom did Trump say those words? And then the report said, a publisher and a writer. Okay, who are the publisher and writer? And then we learned it was for Mark Meadows' book, uh, which I'm holding in my hand. There's, There's been this like drip, drip, drip of information. And I don't know why media outlets you know, legacy, respected media outlets didn't lay it all out initially. And by the way, I didn't even realize, like, why the hell wasn't Meadows there? You send ghostwriters to meet the former president of the United States to, to interview. Right. It's just the whole like mea culpa. Did you write that book or did you have a ghostwriter write that book? I suspect you wrote your book, right? I did. That's correct. And it's just it's just so strange when you actually get to. The, the, the part where they were quoting from uh, that recording that that Trump was waving the documents and so forth. I come to the same conclusion that you do. And that is that Meadows is cooperating. He's going to be a big witness for the prosecution in yep. this case. And that the media outlets that were writing about this whole chapter initially uh, were trying to protect him and protect the people around him probably because they didn't want to jeopardize the prosecution. I totally agree with you. But let's play a hypothetical for a moment, all right? Trump's found guilty, and he's sentenced to real prison time for his actions. Now, I personally don't think, nor do I want to see him in a actual 
facility in a prison, I would be happy with a strict home confinement because rest assured, in that peanut brain of his, he does have top secret information and he'll brag about that shit, he'll sell it, he'll do whatever he needs to. And I'm more concerned about our national security than I am about where his incarceration is going to be held. But what does this end up doing to the nation in terms of creating further divisiveness? All right. I mean, would Trump's imprisonment end the MAGA movement once and for all? Or do you think that it opens up a Pandora's box and kicks off the beginning of a potential? I mean, I'm talking about like a real civil war. Um, the movement is not going to begin and end with Donald Trump. I, I mean, ben, Bra ben Bradley Jr. wrote a book called The First gotten. And it was about Luzerne County, Pennsylvania. He isolated on a Northeast Pennsylvania County where my family comes from. That's why the book really struck a chord with me. And he talked about the mindset of a lot of working class whites that in the pecking order of society today, to quote the title of his book, they've been forgotten. It's not based on, on racism. I mean, I'm, I'm a butter knife away, Michael, from a lot of relatives who are very much, you know, of this this same type of thinking that's pro-Trumpian. Um, they're not racists, but they feel like somehow they've come out now. And, and, and I'm sure the affirmative action reaction, one of the reasons why a majority seemed to like what the court did is because of what I'm describing. The mindset of people who think that they now are second class citizens is not going away when Donald Trump goes away. They no. will still be among us. They will still have their grievances and they're going to want to have a seat at the table in future elections in the same way that Brexit preceded Trump. And there are worldwide populist movements that are taking place. These these thoughts are going to be around longer than he is. Yeah. I, finally, Mike, you and I actually agree completely. I'm I'm afraid of that. And look, the hour goes by here on Maya Culpa very, very quickly. I have one last question for you. Tell me. So we know that we know that Trump. I mean, despite the I, that DeSantis is number two, and he's just a terrible, terrible candidate. Now he may be loved in Florida or or not. You know, um, I know he's like a Fox News darling and pushing all of his anti-woke bullshit agenda and so on. But he hasn't caught on. I think it's fair for us to say that Donald Trump will be the GOP's nominee. I think that's fair. But we have to talk for a moment about RFK Jr., right? I mean, I've had him on this show and I actually talk frequently about how dangerous he is. The funny thing is, you, to talk to him, he's okay. He's like a, just like an average Joe, right? But I now believe after spending an hour with him on the show and listening to his positions, I think he's a wolf in Kennedy clothing. Do you, do you see him as a viable candidate and a threat to Biden? I mean, because what about his, his troubling conspiracy tinged message is that He's the beginning of something much larger, right, where the QAnon anti-vax conspiracy world emerges into the mainstream. Do you see RFK Jr. the same way that I do? I'm not sure. I would need to know more about the way you see him because I've spent time with him recently. I hosted him for a, a radio event for an hour 
and also briefly interviewed him, I guess, on on CNN. So I've had some exchanges with him uh, myself. I, I know that the first thing that gets written about him in like the lead paragraph is anti-vax RFK Jr., if you go back and watch the announcement that he made in Boston, where he took, I think, an hour and 50 minutes, I watched the whole thing on C-SPAN, his campaign is much more about populist, kind of a combination of Trump and Bernie, if anything. And I think, I'm not surprised by the polls that that put him at 20%, and I think he goes higher. I do not think he's tapped out at 20. I think it's going to be a function of how much media attention he gets, because he thinks he's being censored everywhere, that people won't put him on. Um, I think there's some of that, but I also think he's intimidating as an interview because you better have your shit together on some of these vax positions of his so that you're able to raise appropriate pushback questions. And I think some in the media just don't even want to touch it. They're like, oh my God, if I put him on air and he says X or Y and I don't confront him, I'm going to look bad. I think he can go higher. And I think that his campaign is 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 about much more than the things that get the headlines. Um, can he ultimately, you know, threaten Biden for the the nomination? Michael, I think that Gavin Newsom looks at RFK in 20 and says, if it were me, I'd be at 40. And that's one of the reasons why Newsom is out there, you know, carrying Biden's water in in some red states right now. Uh, I don't think that RFK Jr. can win the nomination from Joe Biden, but I think he's going to make this very interesting before all is said and done, including potentially winning in New Hampshire. Iowa, I don't know what happens in a caucus, but I think that he could win New Hampshire, putting a lot of pressure on Biden relative to South Carolina and Nevada. Yeah. Look, as we saw with Donald, he didn't win any of those um, you know, early states either, and he still won the presidency. Um, right. Where RFK Jr. makes me somewhat nervous when we're talking about the anti-vax, he has all of his information. He has all of his proofs. The problem is that his proofs aren't from recognized facilities. You know, I came back and I said to him, listen, my father was a head and neck. Well, thank God, he's still alive. My father is a retired, um, head and neck reconstructive surgeon. My mom was a surgical nurse. I grew up in a house reading JAMA and the American Medical Association, and I have full confidence in the National Institute of Health. Um, I have confidence in, you know, in the medical research that's coming out uh, on vaccinations and so on. He does not. And he cites these um, sort of random uh, you know, studies that are coming out of areas that you would not rely upon. But he does it with such fervor and with such a, a ferocity that you're right. If you don't have your shit in hand, you could really get lost in his... Because he's been saying the same sort of craziness for a very long time. You know, I brought up to him, for example, like polio. I said, when was the last time you really heard of somebody contracting polio? Would you not say that the vaccine, the polio vaccine, it worked? So he's like, no, no, it's more about adaptation. And so, but my, my point is, I just see him, again, you know, 
at 20% because of the name recognition, but I don't see him going higher than that. In fact, I think he actually falls. If he gets to 25, if he gets to 25 in a legitimate poll, by the way, including New York Post poll, okay, then if he gets to 25, you owe me lunch. And if he never gets to, and, and if he never gets to 25, then lunch is on me. That's a deal. Okay, 25 is the Mendoza line. At 25, by the way, I own 25, so he doesn't have to be higher than 25. I get 20, it's like I get 25 25. and above. (laughs) 25.1. I get 25 and above. You get below 25. That's a deal. All right. And I look forward to it. Mike, thank you so much as always. It's always a pleasure having you. Michael, Michael, can I please promote my free worthy daily newsletter. Go to smirconish.com and sign up for it. I handpick the 20 aggregated links that go in it every day and you get the poll question and it costs you nothing. Thank you. I'm on it and I recommend all my listeners as well. Mike, Mike, great to see you, my friend. I'll speak to you very, very soon. You got it. Thank you. And now for today's mea culpa. In thinking about the notion of how we come together as a country, I can't help but worry about just how far apart that we have actually become. The divisions between us are now so vast that there seems to be no way for us ever to come together again. I think about folks like Ron DeSantis and his politics of hate. The country that he wakes up in, along with so many others from MAGA world, is far different than the country that I call home. In their world, it's about policing what we read, worrying about who uses what bathroom, fighting an endless culture war, and making sure that the absolute most vulnerable amongst us, from trans youth to Mexican migrants, feel that they aren't welcome in this society. The country that I wake up in has no time for such nonsense. All are welcome here. That's what this country was founded on. Let me say it again. All are welcome here. The politicians we support are more interested in solving problems than creating controversy. But that's the divide. They think that they're right and that we're wrong. But the truth is, they are so very wrong. And this has to stop if we are to become one nation, united, indivisible, so that we can be the beacon of the world. This bullshit just has to stop. And as always, thanks for listening. Mayor Culpa is brought to you by Audio Up, Midas Touch, and LSJ Media. Written by Jimmy Jelinek, and our editor and managing producer is Lisa Orkin. Our executive producers are Jared Gustad, Jimmy Jelinek, and myself, Michael Cohen, along with Phil Alberstadt. It may be a new day politically, but nowadays the landscape is more confusing than ever. Donald Trump may have lost the battle for the presidency, but in many ways, Trumpism is still winning the war on the state and local level. Maya Culpa is here to help guide you through the wilderness and keep you informed. And let's face it, we all want Trump, Rudy, and the rest of these seditious traitors to see justice. And folks, I promise you, it's coming. So stay tuned as I guide you through the twists and turns of the criminal process that will ultimately see them behind bars. Maya Culpa, nothing but the truth. (laughs) 